This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Thanks for joining me each week alongside my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, while I dive into a new case with you. By sharing these stories, I hope to help give victims back a voice when they no longer have one. And by doing so, we get to expose the monster lurking all around us. Um, hello everyone. Instead of saying welcome back, I will say that I'm back. I know I've been MIA with really no explanation and it kind of came right after. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to like get back into this after the winter and really like go ham on doing it every week. And then I got even slower at putting out episodes. The last three months for me has been a total whirlwind, lots of emotions, lots of highs and lows, and I just could not put out more than one to two episodes a month, honestly. Um, Long story short, a few months ago, I was in the ER a bunch of times because I was having like this really bad abdominal pain. And during that time, I actually found out I was pregnant. I was like super excited. It would be our third kid. And then um, I the pain did not have to do with pregnancy, though. And I actually ended up passing like this ginormous kidney stone. And it actually took two months to come out. So those two months were like misery. I was in so much pain. I couldn't figure out what was going on. It was awful. I kept going to the ER. Um, And then when it passed, it was like a great time. I had my sister's wedding. We found out that our baby was a girl. Like we went to Mexico. And this episode I would have actually been doing right before Mexico or putting out while we were in Mexico. I took all my stuff down there. um, And then I kind of came back from Mexico and shit hit the fan and the last couple weeks have been like very sad. We ended up miscarrying um, our baby and so yeah I have just been up and down with the kidney stone and then like the vacations and the wedding and like super happy about this pregnancy but also tired because I was in my first trimester and then kind of everything came crashing down the last few weeks with miscarrying and going through that and I'm still kind of like postpartum-y. It's very, it's been very hard and very sad. So anyway, not throwing a pity party for myself, just letting you guys know that these last few months have been a total whirlwind for me. And while I wish I could have put out more than one to two episodes a month, I was just not able to do it. But I am really ready to like immerse myself in this and kind of get back to it because it is something I really enjoy doing. I really enjoy sharing these stories and giving victims a voice and like standing up for them. So with that... Are you ready for today's case? On Friday, July 28, 1995, the Phillips family has settled down into their nighttime routine. 
And a few months earlier, they had just moved to the neighborhood where they're living at this time, which is near Baraboo, Wisconsin. And as the night of July 28th crept into the early morning hours of July 29th, Donald Phillips saw his 13-year-old son, Thaddeus Phillips, watching a movie with his five-year-old sister. So this was just after midnight. Donald and his wife decide to head to bed, and they left their children on the couch to finish their movie. And then around 4 a.m. on the 29th, Donald arouses from his sleep and he decides to check on the kids, make sure that they made it into their beds following the movie. And he was surprised to find that his five-year-old daughter had fallen asleep on the couch, but his son Thaddeus, who they called Thad, was not there in the living room. Donald didn't think Thad would have left his sister there alone on the couch, but like maybe he did. How old was he again? He's 13. Dad's 13 and his sister's five. Okay. So Donald's like, this is. I was thinking like kind of late to be watching a movie, but not really for a 13 year old, but kind of for a five year old. Like for the five year old, but it's a weekend. It's like a Friday night. So they're just letting them stay up and watch this movie. But Donald definitely thought that Thad would have like helped his sister to bed. And not just left her there in the living room alone. So he ends up checking Thad's room and it's to no avail because Thad was not in his room either. He was not anywhere inside the Phillips home. So panic sets in. But before they overreact, the Phillips decide to make their rounds searching for their son themselves. They check everywhere they thought he could have been. His favorite hangout spots, places he would regularly go, and they called his friends. But as Saturday passes by with no signs of Thad, by that evening, the Phillips make a call to the police and report their 13-year-old boy missing. And they'll find out later that in those very early morning hours of July 29th, Thad had also fallen asleep on the couch like his younger sister. But he was not left alone to slumber in peace. Instead, one of their neighbors, a boy four years older than him, had just walked into the Phillips home through an unlocked door. And this guy is 17-year-old Joe Clark. Joe had been watching Thad in the neighborhood for some time now, and he had seen Thad in the Phillips yard, and he took notice. On this night, he walks into the home and he actually thinks Thad's parents are gone because he didn't see their car parked in the driveway like it normally was. But as we know, the parents were home. Unfortunately, they did not hear Joe come into their home uninvited. So Joe had woken Thad up off the couch, but only enough to sort of pick him up and assist him. Thad was foggy and still half asleep, so he thought his parents were just helping him to bed. But Joe leads Thad outside and down the road. Joe lived about half a mile away from the Phillips home, so by the time they come to his home, Thad has become aware that he was not led to bed by his parents. He is super confused because he had seen Joe around the neighborhood, but they didn't really know each other. Joe was older and they didn't run in the same circles. But Joe told Thad he just wanted to hang out. Thad was either fearful or he simply did not know what to do. So he agreed for the time being, like, all right, I guess I'll hang out with you. Like, it was really weird 
for him to get woken up out of his sleep and like led to this boy's house. And then like soon after he agreed to hang out with Joe, he was like, all right, never mind. Like, I'm sick of this. He did not want to be at this strange kid's house in the middle of the night. So he tells Joe that he wanted to go home now. He needed to go to sleep. And with that statement, Joe Clark flies into a rage. By now, Joe had brought Thad into his home and up into his bedroom. Joe's parents, Ron and Bertha Clark, were out of town for the night visiting their older daughter, and Joe had stayed home alone. So no one was there to hear the agonizing torture Thad would go through. No one was there who could have helped him. Once Joe was angry, he grabbed Thad by the foot and he started twisting it. And Joe put so much force into this twist that he snapped Thad's ankle. So when Thad looked down, he saw his foot facing backwards. And this was just the first of many bones that Thad would have broken by Joe Clark. Oh my gosh. I know. I told you it's like weird. Sounds like a psycho. Yeah, kidnapped in the middle of the night, brought to this kid's house who lives in his neighborhood, and then, like, he out of nowhere has his ankle broken. He's 13. This kid is 17. Very strange. Like, so weird. So, Joe, he got aroused by seeing other people suffer. There was something that he loved about the sound of bones breaking. He would admit this later. But he also loved tending to these broken bones as well. So like after breaking Thad's bones, Joe would wrap them up in athletic socks and ace bandages. And one of Joe's other sexual fetishes, I couldn't, I did not say that right. One of Joe's other sexual fetishes, I can't, how do you say that? Fetishes? Fetishes? Yeah, there we go. (laughs) I could not get that word out. So this other sexual fetish that Joe had was athletic socks like something about athletic socks turned joe on okay like he had even broken into one of his friends home and stolen athletic socks okay first of all how does he know (laughs) that he gets aroused by breaking bones like has he done it to people before before that yeah probably yes (laughs) probably or do you know I know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He is. Because I'm like, he had to have been doing it maybe to his siblings or something. Like, you wouldn't just know, would you? But it, yeah. Like, how did he end up starting that fetish? Yeah. Like, where does that start? Did you hear a bone break? Did you accidentally break something yourself? Like, did you just like seeing people, like, get hurt in an accident? And then you're like, I'll take this and do it myself. I don't know how that kind of started or where it originated. It's very odd. Yeah. So like, and then it's just so weird because he'll like break Thad's ankles, but then he'll wrap them up in in, like the athletic socks. Like he'll put these socks on him. And like take care of him. Yeah. Very weird. And then... Like, this is very disturbing because after wrapping that up in the bandages and the athletic socks, Joe proceeded to expose himself to Thad before masturbating over top of him. 
And while doing this, Joe is also suffocating Thad with a pillow held over his face. But Thad survives this horrific sexual assault only to be tortured more. So after first having his ankle broken by Joe Clark, Thad gave it his all to escape. And he was able to get free of Joe's grip and limp himself down the stairs heading for the door. But Joe had chased him and unfortunately caught up with him. Joe threw Thad onto the couch and grabbed his leg. Joe bent Thad's leg up towards his head until Thad's femur snapped. His femur. That's like the largest bone in your body. Right? Yeah. And I hear it's extremely painful. Yeah. So he breaks his femur after having just broke his ankle bone by twisting it. At the end of this whole ordeal, it will be discovered that Thad had both of his femurs broken. Both of his knees and ankles were dislocated and broken. And both of his tibias were broken. So Thad's legs are like completely shattered. Oh my god! Like all the bones in both of his legs are broken. From Joe twisting them, bending them, and jumping on them. Wow. Which, which one's the tibia? It's one like in the calf, right? Yeah. So can you imagine like both your femurs, both your knees, both your tibias, both your ankles just broken? He just like. And this guy just keeps like twisting your legs, jumping on your legs, like hurting you. What a psycho. Yeah. It's like scary. To, and he's 17 years old. He's doing this in his parents' house. His parents are just gone for the weekend. Wow. It's so weird. So at one point, Joe had left the home and Thad had drug himself down the stairs, but he was not quick enough. He had heard Joe come home, so he laid in a room downstairs hoping not to be discovered. Joe had the audacity to actually bring a girl home, so he's hanging out there with this girl on the couch and he never takes her upstairs because he is literally holding a young boy hostage and torturing him. Wait. He brings a girl. Is the girl there the whole time? No, he just like brings her home one of the days. Like Joe, uh, Thad had crawled downstairs trying to escape while Joe was gone. Oh, he so he's there for several days? He's there like through this weekend. Oh. Like it's not like a one night ordeal. Are his parents searching for him? Uh, yeah, his parents are searching for him at this point, but there's like no one realizes he's just there in the neighborhood right down the street in this boy's house. So this girl comes over that Joe's like hanging out with this girl and he doesn't know that Thad had actually crawled downstairs and is like waiting there <laughs> hoping that he'll leave again. The girl ends up leaving and then... Joe discovers Thad down there laying in another room once he goes to retrieve him upstairs and, you know, sees he's not there. So when he discovers that Thad tried to escape, more beatings and torture ensue. But on July 30th, 1995, a Columbia County dispatcher answers a shocking call. It's Thad Phillips. He had made it downstairs during one of Joe's outings. Joe had put him into his bedroom closet. Thad had his legs wrapped and tied up, and Joe had locked the closet. 
So inside that closet, Thad spotted a guitar, which he used to break a hole through the closet door. And he then painfully drug his limp and broken legs behind him as he made his way downstairs and to the home phone, which he was able to knock off the receiver and call 911 for help. He tells the dispatchers who he is and that he was kidnapped by his neighbor. He says that he has his legs broken and this neighbor is named Joe Clark. Law enforcement was able to trace this call to the Clark's home, where they rescued 13-year-old Thaddeus Phillips. He was in bad shape, so he was immediately taken by ambulance to St. Clair's Hospital. Thad was extremely dehydrated upon arrival because while Joe did try to give him food and water, Thad had refused to eat. He said he was terrified that Joe was going to poison him. Oh, my God. And this was not the way Thad wanted to die. So he just, like, refused all food and water that Joe gave him because he's like, you're crazy. Like, you're going to kill me. So this young boy was smart and he was determined to fight for his life. Once Thad was brought into the hospital, he had to immediately undergo emergency surgery in an effort to save his two badly broken and shattered legs. His parents were called, and while they were relieved to hear that their missing son was found alive, they were confused as to why he was taken into surgery for broken legs. The news of what their son endured would devastate them. Now, while Thad was transported to the hospital, officers with the Baraboo Police Department stayed at the Clark home to await Joe Clark's return to his home. When he arrives, he was promptly arrested and held on kidnapping charges. He was taken to the juvenile detention center since he was not quite 18 years old, and this is where police would conduct their first interview with him. Joe would claim to police that after throwing Thad onto his bed the first time, he just blacked out. He didn't know what happened for the whole weekend, which is obviously like a lie. He just says like, oh, I blacked out like I got really mad and then I have no idea what happened. And he honestly doesn't really give answers to anything ever. He just says in everything, I blacked out. I don't know. Mm. Which is not true, but police with the Sauk County Sheriff's Office would file a report on the case citing the torture that Thad Phillips experienced. But there was something shocking said by Thad when he came into the right mindset to speak with officers. He told them that he asked Joe if he had ever done these things to anyone else. And Joe told him he did paralyze another boy before asking him if he knew Chris Steiner. Now, there are no reports that Joe did paralyze another kid that survived. Maybe Chris Steiner was the boy Joe paralyzed, but he did not survive. Chris was a young boy from Baraboo, Wisconsin, that had tragically died the previous year in 1994. But no one knew that Chris had been murdered until Thad told police that Joe killed Chris. In fact, Chris's death had been ruled undetermined and police believed it had been an accidental drowning. And now Thad's saying that Chris Steiner, this Joe killed him. Oh. 
So that's how I knew he did it before because he murdered a boy before and he probably would have murdered Thad had he not been caught, been able to call 911. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, how do you get out of that? You You, couldn't. You can't let someone go after you break like all the bones in both of their legs. Yeah. So Chris Steiner was born to parents George and Kathy Steiner on November 19th, 1979. So in July of 1994, he's 14 years old. And at this time, Joe is about 16 years old. Chris had recently started a new job at McDonald's for the summer, and he was excited about making his own money. And July 3rd was one of his first shifts, so he comes home exhausted. George remembers seeing his son asleep, still fully dressed in his work clothes around 10 p.m. But he doesn't bother to wake Chris because he knew that Chris must have been worn out to fall asleep without first changing into his pajamas. So on the morning of July 4th, 1994, Kathy Steiner goes into Chris's room to wake him up. He was scheduled for a 7 a.m. shift that morning, and she probably also wanted to wish him a happy 4th of July and discuss any plans they might have once he was off work. Because the Steiner family lives in Wisconsin, which is here in the United States, so the 4th of July, as you know if you live here, is Independence Day. And it's a great holiday. So I'm sure the family had plans and they were probably going to the fireworks or doing some type of community gathering or doing something as a family. And I don't know, I just love the 4th of July. So to me, it just adds another layer of sadness to this case because Chris was likely looking forward to some of the festivities that night. When Kathy finds her son missing from his room, she's concerned. And that worry grows stronger when they discover that the screen to the window in their other son's room had been cut. There was also an unlocked door, so it seemed strange that the screen may have been cut to gain entry. There were also muddy footprints inside the home, which were not there the previous night. And this suggested to the Steiners that someone had entered their home that night. But there were no other signs of a struggle, and nothing was heard by Kathy and George. Their other son had been gone from the home that night, the son whose bedroom, like, window screen was cut. And you know who knew that this other son was gone? Joe Clark. Because Joe was friends. He wasn't friends with Thad, who he kidnapped, but he was friends with Chris Steiner. So Joe had been hanging around Chris Steiner quite a bit before he went missing. In fact, Kathy remembers that Chris and Joe did hang out that day on July 3rd, and they had gotten into an argument because Joe was trying to convince Chris to go somewhere with him that evening. But Chris did not want to go. He had just worked his first shift at McDonald's. He wanted to come home and go to sleep before his shift the next morning. But police interviewed Joe in the early days of the investigation, and they never thought he had anything to do with the disappearance. Police were not interviewing friends of Chris to see if they hurt him. That like wasn't really their intention when interviewing Chris's friends, because the police went into this 
thinking that it was an accidental drowning. They interviewed friends because early on, it's their theory that Chris had snuck out on the night of July 3rd to party with friends and that all of this was an accident. So at the moment, they just thought he was a runaway or that a terrible accident had happened during this night out with his friends. And I mean, police did admit that there were elements that didn't add up with the runaway theory, such as the muddy footprints and the slit screen on the window. But still, the investigation takes this route. I would be like kind of pissed because Kathy, yeah, Kathy Steiner never believed it. In fact, she always, always thought Joe had something to do with it. I don't think she could have ever like thought the extent of what Joe did to her son because who expects that their son's friends is like breaking their legs and then murdering them but I think she thought something happened maybe he did sneak out with Joe and Joe left him out you know somewhere some fight happened or you know so she always thought Joe knew something but police just yeah were not there with her like they just were not on that same level And the weird thing about the investigation taking this route, like that he snuck out and some accident happened while they were partying, it's weird because there is not one single friend that says they saw Chris that night. All of them insist that they did not sneak out. But the police are like, well, now this kid's missing. Something happened. They're probably too scared. Yeah. So that's just what police are thinking. The kids are too scared and that's why they're saying they didn't sneak out. But yeah, still weird with like a cut screen and muddy footprints. Yeah. You know, like, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're going to sneak out, I don't feel like you're going to cut a screen. <laughs> no. And there was two unlocked doors. Yeah. Like, I think it'd be less noisy to just open the door quietly than it would be to slit a screen and crawl out the window. Right. It's just like it's very obvious that Chris did not sneak out this night. But again, the police just keep going down this route. So with no answers at this point, Chris's family and friends search extensively for him alongside the police. They hand out missing persons flyers. They walk surrounding areas. But Chris would remain missing for six days until two jet skiers on the Wisconsin River come across a body draped over a partially submerged tree just off the shoreline. It would be determined that this was the body of Chris Steiner. At the time of his death, he had just completed his eighth grade school year and was excited for a summer of fun before his life was tragically ripped from him. Not in an accident following a night of sneaking out and partying, but by the monster he knew, Joe Clark. The day after Chris's body was discovered in the Wisconsin River, a pathologist by the name of Dr. Robert Huntington performs an autopsy. He was unsure where the body had actually been placed into the water and how far it could have floated downstream, but he did determine that Chris had been in the water for at least two days. Dr. Huntington determined that Chris's body had no physical trauma, only small bruises and cuts that could have been caused by being in the river. So ultimately, Chris's death is determined to have been an accidental drowning. The manner of death is listed as undetermined. 
And this plays into the police theory that Chris must have snuck out, been partying, and something went wrong, ultimately resulting in Chris accidentally drowning. The shoreline of the Wisconsin River was searched for a parting spot, but since the water had risen in the last few days before the discovery of Chris's body, they decided there was really no chance to find anything. The Columbia County Sheriff's Office tells Chris's family their determination about what happened here, and with that, the case was closed. So, like, they decided... For a fact, closing the case, this was an accident. Even though there was like no evidence that he snuck out and that it was an accident, it was so weird. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it just doesn't seem like they, you know, really investigated this great. So did they find out later, like if any bones were broken or anything? Yes. Like it will turn out that he did have physical trauma to his body. He did not just have minor cuts and bruises. And it's like, how do you miss broken bones? Yeah, especially (laughs) if like the limbs look floppy. Yeah. But I think it literally was going in with a closed mindset of like already thinking they knew what happened. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm just going to kind of check, make sure this was a drowning and call it good. So... The Steiners, they did not fully trust in this theory. They just sort of had to accept it. But the muddy footprints in their home and that slit screen on the window kept popping up in the back of their mind. Kathy Steiner had this gut feeling that Joe Clark knew more than he admitted. But what could she do about it? The case was closed. So they buried their son at St. Joseph's Cemetery in Baraboo, Wisconsin on July 14, 1994. For the next year, they would agonize over the pain of wondering what exactly happened. If Chris was out partying with friends, which ones were they? And how could they have left him out there alone? In the following year, 1995, that's when Thad Phillip makes the call to 911 from Joe Clark's home, saving his own life and ultimately solving Chris Steiner's case, bringing a murderer to justice. In fact, with the investigation reopened, Chris's body is exhumed for re-examination. In the first examination, it seems that because the body had been in the water for a week, that was used to sort of say like, oh, not much can be determined because he was very decomposed due to being in the water that long. And, you know, the pathologist determines, yes, Chris drowned. Apparently, during this first autopsy, x-rays were not taken, but the second time they were. And it turns out that there was actually physical damage done to Chris's body, not just minor cuts and bruises. In fact, Chris had suffered eerily similar injuries to Thad Phillips. Both of Chris's knees and ankles were broken. Mm. So it goes right along with Thad's testimony that Joe told him he killed Chris Steiner. And Joe never thought that Thad was going to escape. 
and tell the police. Yeah. Did he actually tell him that he killed him or just that he paralyzed? He told him he had paralyzed. Like that says it like, oh, Joe said he had paralyzed one boy. And then he also asked me if I knew Chris Steiner. And he said that he did this to him too. And Thad did know about Chris Steiner. I don't know if he like knew him, but they lived in the same place. Like he had heard that this kid went missing and had died. So he put two and two together. Yeah. I just didn't know if he like said he killed him or just said he paralyzed him. Yeah. So it like when I'm researching it, it makes it sound like Joe said he paralyzed a different kid and then he killed Chris. But I sort of just thought is the person he's referring to paralyzing? Like, did he just say like, yeah, I've paralyzed someone. And then later on, he said he killed Chris because Chris did drown. So I wonder, and this is like just my own thoughts while I was researching, but did he paralyze Chris and then throw him into the river? Mm-hmm. And if you're paralyzed, you can't swim and he drowned. Oh, okay. So that's why I was like, is that who he's referring to? Because there's no record of any other boy that Joe had actually done this to. I'm assuming if he paralyzed some kid, like there would be some record of that. Yeah. You know, and that's why I think Joe's probably paralyzed Chris and that's why Chris drowns. Okay. Now police serve a search warrant on the Clark home where Joe was living with his parents at the time of these attacks. Inside, the broken guitar that Thad Phillips used to escape was found. Things like leg braces and body braces were found on top of things covered in what was described as satanic writing. Two items found during this search stood out to police. One was this compilation of lists. One list read, get to now. One read, can wait. And one read, leg thing. The super creepy part about this is that local boys' names were written on these lists. So Joe Clark was already planning to target his future victims. Like, can you imagine your name was on that list? No. Like, Get to now, so the boys he wanted to kill immediately, can wait, the ones he can get to later, and I don't know what the leg thing is. He breaks all their legs, so I don't know. Does it, do you find anything like, are his parents normal? No, not not from what is like said about them. They claim they are, but oh, not really. I mean, I don't think they're out there breaking people's bones, <laughs> But, like, they're normally dysfunctional, (laughs) like, because they're alcoholics. So it's like, a lot of people are, and they're not out there raising kids that are killing people. Yeah, I just wondered if he had gotten abused by them. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Maybe he did. You know, you never... That wasn't really, like, said in anything, but it just, it sounds like he had, like, a unhealthy environment in his home. Okay. Not necessarily, they didn't mention abuse, but you never know. So, the other thing that 
was found that gave investigators chills were these sketches Joe had made of homes in the area. But the sketches were of the inside of these homes, probably so that Joe could plan out how he would kidnap these boys. He had to have either stood outside homes creeping through the windows to make these sketches, or he had to have snuck into these homes. Either way, scary. He just sounds like a creepo. Like he's so weird. I'm going to send you a picture of them. Like the three. Oh, no. So the one in the middle is um, Chris Steiner, who was murdered. And then the one on the left with the bushy eyebrows and like open mouth that he can't close is Joe, the murderer. And then the one in the baseball cap is Thad, who lived. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He can't close his mouth. His lips are just all big and open. He's like that one girl. Did you see that TikTok after The Bachelor? Remember The Bachelor a while ago when the girl like talked like this? Like I don't. <laughs> you you don't remember? Uh. Uh-uh. There's like a TikTok, cause she's like talking crap on another girl, and she like says it like this. I bet you some people will know what I mean. <laughs> oh like, my god! <laughs> there's this TikTok where the guy like talks and he keeps talking like this, like with his mouth open. <laughs> I'm having Jacob send it to you. He showed it to me before. <laughs> anyway, that's what. Um. Uh, Joe looks like if you want to look him up he is gross and like a 17 year and the other two look so innocent and little they're 13 and 14 years old like they're little babies so with these findings along with the re-examination of Chris Steiner's body and Thad Phillips eyewitness account Joe Clark was charged with not only the attack on Thad but also the murder of Chris Remember, he was already sitting in jail at this time because he had gone to jail for kidnapping once that was rescued. The South County juvenile justice system would take on the case against Joe Clark. And thankfully, even though Joe was 16 to 17 years old when he commits these crimes, Judge Virginia Wolf rules that he would be charged as an adult. It was only after. Yeah. Like, hallelujah. 17, you knew what you were doing. Yeah. And it was only after Joe was charged as an adult that his name would be released to the public as the perpetrator in this these cases. But Joe's classmates at school were not surprised. In fact, many students had already accused him of killing Chris Steiner. Joe's parents would eventually tell the media and testify that the kids at school taunted Joe and that this was a witch hunt, is how they described it. Joe's own dad recalls hearing a girl come up to Joe and ask him outright if he killed Chris, which I'm like, what did you do when you heard a kid ask your kid that? I'd be like, why the frick does that girl think you killed someone? Yeah. Like... That's weird. You must be doing something weird for your classmates to to think think. you murdered somebody. Yeah. Well, it had to have been probably. Especially when the police think it was an accident. But your classmates are like, "Mm, mm, mm-mm-mm. Yeah, but you said, like, his mom thought that it was Joe. Yeah. The mom thought it was him. The kids at school thought it was him. 
So he obviously gave off bad vibes. Bertha Clark, Joe's mom, didn't believe that her son killed Chris, even though he had the same injuries as Thad, who Joe clearly did attack. Bertha said that Joe was so upset and distraught over his friend's death, and it hurt him that people were blaming him. Bertha even states that this bullying became so severe that they had to pull Joe out of school before he could complete his senior year. Bertha felt that her son was being wrongfully judged. But what Bertha fails to see is the similarities between Thad and Chris's case. And this was no witch hunt. Joe was not being bullied. People knew in their guts that something was off about him and that he did something to Chris. And Joe was probably distraught, not because his friend tragically lost his life, but because he is the one who took it. She's like, he was seriously distraught like he was really sad I'm like yeah he was probably acting weird after because he just murdered somebody yeah (laughs) like I'm sure he was distraught like that's crazy and it sounds like this is the first and only person he murdered and he almost then murdered that afterwards and he had a plan to get more yeah like he was full-on planning to become a serial killer So in September of 1995, Joe Clark was officially charged with multiple counts regarding the attack on Thad Phillips. Joe was charged with burglary, kidnapping, intentionally causing great bodily harm to a child, causing mental harm to a child, mayhem, two counts of child enticement, and first degree attempted intentional homicide. Joe decided to plead no contest to the charges, so a jury doesn't have to decide whether he was guilty or innocent. So he's like, no contest, like you're charging me. They just now have to decide if he was competent when he committed these crimes because Joe's defense attorney, Mark Frank, decided to roll with an insanity defense. So they didn't have to prove if he was guilty or innocent. He pled no contest. They're just now deciding, should he be sentenced as a competent person or as, you know, an insane person? And this trial begins on September 16th, 1995. The prosecution provided expert witnesses, psychologists that had examined Joe and testified that he was, in fact, in his right mind when committing these crimes. They didn't believe that he fit an insanity defense. The prosecution also presented evidence that Joe was aroused by other people's pain and suffering and that he had this fetish for the pain and the gym socks, all of the stuff I mentioned earlier. He had stolen those socks from friends. He wrapped Thad's legs up with the socks. This was something he became obsessed with. Prosecutor Pat Barrett also called Thad Phillips to the stand, and Thad told the harrowing tale of what he endured in the days he was tortured by Joe. He testifies about when Joe broke his ankle and the sound of that snap he will never forget. He testifies about Joe pushing his leg upwards at an angle until the bones in his leg snapped. 
Thad talked about everything I mentioned earlier while discussing his attack. And he became so emotional during this testimony that the judge called for a recess to give everyone, especially Thad, a break from the heart-wrenching testimony. This famous forensic psychologist also testified that Joe Clark was a sexual sadist who absolutely did not black out during these attacks. He said Joe was simply trying to escape the consequences of his actions by his statements that, oh, I cannot remember, like I'm not sure. This psychologist was like, yeah, this is fake. This is like he's putting on a front. Mm -hmm. This forensic psychologist was Park Dietz, who was called as an expert witness in both the Betty Bodrick case and the Jeffrey Dahmer case. Now, as for the defense's case, they called witnesses who would testify that Joe had extreme behavior changes after suffering a head injury from a dirt biking crash. Attorney Mark Frank presented medical records, which did indicate that Joe suffered a blood clot above the covering of the brain. And this actually didn't really show severe head trauma. In fact, the medical records pointed to a quick and easy recovery. Regardless, Mark Frank told jurors that Joe Clark suffered, quote, an abnormal condition of the mind. Now, Joe also had a history with outbursts at school. Mark Frank called witnesses who had assessed Joe over the years since the head injury occurred, and these assessments had to be done after Joe threatened to kill one of his teachers and when he punched another student. But the reports done by those who assessed Joe over the years did not point to a severe condition or to someone who needed this like extensive care. Joe's parents, Ron and Bertha Clark, of course, testified for the defense. Bertha made the head injury seem very extreme, but the prosecution shuts her down upon cross-examination. Bertha still insisted that there was a big change in her son following this dirt biking accident, and she did believe he needed some sort of psychiatric help. However, she never sought this help before the trial. Ultimately, it took only an hour for the jury to decide that Joe Clark was not suffering any mental incapacity when committing the crimes against Thad Phillips. Joe was sentenced to over 100 years for this crime. Ooh. Yes. That's a good one. uh, Yeah, he got a large sentence. And then later in October of 1997, a civil court would rule that Joe was to pay Thad more than $27 million in damages. Obviously, with Joe in prison, he would never earn millions of dollars. But the judge in this case actually ruled that Joe could be allowed to make money off of his story and these crimes, meaning he could earn money from movies and TV shows and interviews based on the case. And the judge made this ruling because all proceeds would actually just go to Thad Phillips to pay off that $27 million debt. So I'm not actually sure if he's made money. Maybe he's like, okay, well, screw that. I'm not selling my story then. Yeah. Following this civil case, Joe Clark's trial for the murder of Chris Steiner would start just a month later in November of 1997. 
Columbia County District Attorney Clark Bennett would prosecute Joe. Thad Phillips was also set to testify in this trial. However, Thad was shot by another boy he knew just days before the trial began. By this time, Thad was only 15 or 16 years old, so after being kidnapped, tortured, and almost murdered, he was shot just two years later. On accident or? On purpose. Someone was trying to kill him? Um, The story's a little sketch. So thankfully, Thad does survive. So he has survived two basically attempted murders. He was shot in the shoulder. And the stories around this, like I said, a little sketch because the boy who shot Thad claimed that Thad and his friends were at his home. They were threatening to kill him. So this boy says he shot Thad in self-defense, even though the shot to Thad's shoulder entered in from the back, which tells me Thad was running away, not coming into your house to kill you if you shot him from the back. But then, and I just read this on some Reddit threads, so take this with a grain of salt because, you know, these are just things people have said. But I read a lot of Reddit threads on it and a lot of people commented that said, you know, they were from Wisconsin area and what they knew was that the boy who shot Thad was actually a friend of Joe's who was trying to keep Thad from testifying. Again, take that with a grain of salt. I can't find a lot of information on this. I don't think the boy got charged because he claimed it was in self-defense. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I know. This guy is is unlucky. He has been through it because I read I just read a lot like you guys can go read it on Reddit if you want. I mean, those are just like theories and but I always think Reddit gives a lot of information not necessarily on murders. I look at it for like everything just to get real opinions not just media opinions. And so there was like a lot of talk on this guy and they had a lot of info on this guy who shot him and how he was just like not a great dude, which kind of makes sense. I mean, he was shot days before the trial began. Seems kind of suspicious. Seems suspicious for sure. So poor Thad was just like going through it. And even though he did survive, he was not able to testify. Chris Steiner's mom, Kathy, though, she did testify about her son's friendship with his killer and about the argument Joe and Chris had gotten into earlier on that day that Chris was kidnapped. Joe's mom, Bertha, testified again in Joe's defense. She even tried to provide an alibi for Joe, saying that on the night Chris went missing, Joe was at home in his bed all night. But the prosecution shuts this down quickly because the search warrant served at the Steiner's home had given investigators insight into how Joe could have gotten away with these crimes inside a home he shared with his parents. We know on the weekend that Thad was abducted, Ron and Bertha were out of town, and Joe was home alone. And it wasn't proven that Joe and Bertha were gone during Chris's abduction and murder, But during the search warrant, the Steiner home was found to be a mess with beer bottles and alcohol strewn across the entire house. It was described as being in like disarray. 
And then there were journals of Joe's found. And in these journals, Joe detailed how his parents were drunk and passed out every day and how they were always out of it. He wrote about how he hated to admit that his parents were passed out and drunk so often. So with this, the prosecution was able to show that Bertha was not a reliable witness to provide an alibi, even though she she does deny that she was drunk all the time. Yeah. I mean, Joe's journals and what the police saw kind of tell you. A, a different story. Probably lying. Yeah. And it's just like, I just can't trust somebody who knows that their son shattered this boy's legs and kidnapped him and then is going to try and defend him like in this other murder case. Yeah. Like you have either got to be dense in extreme denial or you just are willing to protect your kid at all costs, which yeah, on like a basic human level, I'm willing to protect my kid at all costs, but like not when they murder people. (laughs) Like there is a line where it's like, well... (laughs) I kind of got to let him go, you know, like I'll visit you in prison. I'm not going to give him an alibi. Right. I'm not going to say it's a witch hunt when I know like she knows her kid literally tortured this other kid who escaped. Yeah. But like this murder charge is a witch hunt. It's just crazy to me. Maybe I'm being harsh on her because I usually do feel bad for the killer's parents because I'm like, well, it doesn't have anything to do with them. It's not their fault. Yeah. Yeah. But when they defend, I'm just like, oh, like, don't be in such denial. But I know it'd be hard. I don't know. It's it's it is tough to say how you would react as a parent. Yeah, it's something you would never want to find out. No, that I mean, it truly is something I would never wish on anybody. In this case, in the murder case, the jury ends up finding Joe Clark guilty of the first-degree murder of Chris Steiner, and Judge James Evison sentenced him to 110 years that would be served concurrently with his sentence in the Thad Phillips case. So concurrently is like at the same time. So he got 110 for the murder. He got 100 for um the attack on that but it's not like he got 210 years does that make sense yeah like he's serving them at the same time so after 70 years joe would be eligible for parole he will be in his 90s by then so i'm assuming he will likely be dead before he is even eligible joe has been incarcerated since 1995 which is about 28 years now in 2023 and he is in his 40s joe has tried to appeal different parts of his cases over the years but none of his appeals have changed a thing all rulings have been upheld and joe remains in prison exactly where he deserves to be Thanks for listening. I literally love every single one of you that presses play on one of our episodes. You are all my favorite people besides my family and friends and those that I like really love that are super close to me. But besides that, you guys are my favorite people ever. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters. Today I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser. Today we are going to be talking about the heart. Did you know an adult's heart 
is typically the size of a fist. And the per day, your heart will beat approximately 115,000 times. Whoa, that's a lot. Your heart can pump 2,000 liters of blood every day. So the heart is an incredible organ. And our hearts are full of love for you guys. Bye. Have a great day. Okay, I'm not really going to necessarily mention an organization, but today I do want to encourage everyone to go watch the movie The Sound of Freedom. This is a movie highlighting child sex trafficking, and it is something that needs to be seen, especially if you're someone that doesn't quite understand what's happening in our world, that this is happening all around us, and that here in America, we are the number one consumer. You guys know that children are my number one. They are the victims I really have to talk about. They are the victims who are more than innocent, completely pure, and while everyone is undeserving of any violence, children, I just can't handle that thought. So please, please go spend your money supporting this show and educate yourself.